we all get stuck in what we should do or what we should have done. The word should can inspire us and it can inhibit us. It can get us moving and it can hold us back. Why is it so hard to move past complacency and get inspired to build the fulfilling future that we want? You are listening to Should Theory. Let's talk it out. Stories, interviews, and more to inform and inspire you towards building the future that you want. Get motivated, figure out how you want to shift, and then get your shift together. I'm Tara Grebe. Let's do this with the Should Theory. Welcome to this episode of Should Theory. Super glad that you're joining us today. I have Jay Schiffman with me. Super excited about what he's going to share with you. Jay, how are you today? I'm doing all right. Thank you. It's been a it's been a long day, but I'm I'm really excited to wrap up the day talking to you. That's a nice me nice end to too. the day. I have been looking forward to it all day. It's one of those things where you have stuff you have to do, but then you have something to look forward to. It kind of makes it a little easier to get through the mundane. Well put. Yes, absolutely. So Jay, tell the folks that are listening a little bit about yourself. Well, uh, I am a, a Philly guy. That's the, the first thing. I live here in Philadelphia with my wife and our dog. Uh, but I am, I think that the thing most people know about me is I am 11 years in recovery. Mm-hmm. Uh, and for me, by the way, recovery does not mean complete and total sobriety. There, there is a long spectrum that all of us find our place on. And mine is is not sobriety. Thankfully, I, I never had an issue with alcohol. So that was never a, a problem for me. Right. Uh, I, I am... Uh, like I said, 11 years in, re- in, in, in recovery, but, but that, that story is one that really goes back a long way, uh, to, to my, my preteen years where I was diagnosed with ADHD, uh, and, and later, uh, misdiagnosed with bipolar leading to, a, over a half a decade of struggling with, um, uh, reliance and then misuse and then addiction to, wow. to many different prescription pills, uh, and, uh, in, 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 the summer of, of 2009, when I was 23 years old, I attempted suicide twice in a two-day span. I overdosed, uh, and, and that set off a year that saw me spend three weeks in a lockdown unit, three months in a long-term care facility, finally almost four months of going through step-down detox uh, to, to get rid of all the prescription pills and launch me on my path to recovery. So I know there's a lot in there, but that's the very short version of, of what I went through. I think it's important that you that you you know frame it that way right off the bat because uh, of a few things. Number one, I would say most of the episodes that we have had and most of the guests that we have had thus far, um, their struggles have been with the career they chose, the path that was laid out for them, um, you know. I don't want to say more common things, but um, things that that, that I, I feel badly even saying this because I don't want to disqualify anybody's struggles. And by all means, when I think about my own struggles, they are nothing compared to the things that you have just described. Um, but I say that um, owning my own challenges and difficulties and saying, you know, our world and our struggles are as real as they are for us and not to be compared to anybody else's. With that said, um, what I'm really excited about having you on the show is that I feel like you are coming to us from a different perspective and yet one that is extremely prevalent, 
Um, and that is struggles that, that lead to addiction, um, struggles with mental health issues, struggles with social emotional um, pain and suffering, I guess, for lack of a better way to put it. And I'm so happy that you are here to discuss those shoulds and struggles that so many of us have, you know, crippling in a crippling way. And sometimes in addition to the other things that I just mentioned. Well, I think there's, there's, thank you. First off, that's very, that's very kind. And, and, and number two, I would say that the most important word you use there is prevalence. Mm -hmm. uh, there, before the, the COVID uh, epidemic began, uh, the, the estimate, because you can never really get hard numbers on this, of how many people were struggling with some uh, struggle of mental health and, and substance misuse was one in four. Uh, you, in, in fact, some even said one in five during the pandemic. And, and really, we're talking about 2020 because I think everything is shifting so quickly right now. Uh, that estimate was one in two because anxiety exploded depression right. exploded. And of course, the, the, that, that there's a lot of negatives to come with that. However, uh, I, I heard one fascinating take, and I, I just am so uh, regretful that I don't remember who wrote this, but right. I, I thought it was so in, in, in insightful, was that they actually were trying to look at the silver lining of this, and they thought that going forward, the stigma around and the misunderstanding around uh, these struggles would plummet because people would go, wow, if you're telling me that what I felt for all of 2020 and now 2021 is what you feel on a regular basis, mm -hmm. I get it. I understand that. I empathize with that. And, and, and so obviously we won't know if that's true for a while, but I, I, I would like to think so. I think that that will make that profound change. Well, listen, I, I would add this to, to what you just said. Um, I think most of the listeners know that um, in addition to doing this, I work in education. And <clears throat> during the pandemic, one of the things that became crystal clear extremely quickly was that uh, COVID had and its effects, and I don't mean uh, biologically, <laughs> had zero... Um, uh, what's the word I want? There were no qualifications and there were no limitations right. as to the reach of the effects uh, uh, emotionally of being locked down, um, the world changing in a hot second. And so one of the things that I have said to my staff time and time again uh, during this time is the predictors that you have come to know and rely on due to your years of experience are completely out the window. You know, the, the symptoms and signs that might make you think that, you know, Jane or, or Jasmine or Jonathan might have a certain issue um, don't count anymore. Take all of that experience and ball it up and throw it out the window because I think that people who may have had... Uh, would be seen as no social emotional issues, no mental health issues, high functioning, happy, all the things, all of those so stereotypical words that go with someone who's um, not suffering from mental health or depression or anxiety issues, um, you know, looks a certain way, acts a certain way, and is predictable. And I think that uh, there are things that manifested from these experiences over the last 20 months plus that have have said, you know, these effects know no boundaries. These effects have no menu. 
you know, there's no qualifications that say this is going to affect you and it's not going to affect you. You're going to be more resilient. You're going to be less resilient. And so I think what you said about it um, leading to a reduction in stigma is true. Um, I would say certainly in the educational community, it has shaken up the realization that you need to look at the whole child and not just the academic child. Um, and also, I would say your whole employee and not just the professional side of your employee. So, you know, that is a good benefit. And I would say corporations and businesses are seeing that across the board. With that said, I also would predict, and I'm interested to see what you think about this, um, that we're only seeing the tip of the iceberg. And I think that um, things that have been caused or um, stirred by the pandemic may only just be manifesting for some people. Oh, I think there's no question. Right. And I think what's what's scary is, is and you alluded to this, in, in these struggles in the workplace. There was a, a, a study done uh, in 19, they published in 20, where they, uh, ex they interviewed, uh, it was like 600 something HR reps and asked them, how comfortable are you uh, giving guidance to somebody who comes to your office at your job and says that they're struggling with any sort of addiction it doesn't have to be, you know, substances. It can be anything. And uh, the the results were less than twenty five percent were comfortable giving them the, that guidance. And so uh, this the, one of the points they were trying to make with this with this study is that you know if it, the the days of us not giving this uh, whole person their due in the workplace have to be over because we can't just go, well, you know, we're not giving anybody in this workplace the the training to, to help somebody in a crisis. Gosh, I wonder why so many people are struggling in this crisis. It, yeah. it, you know, if most of us before, at least before the pandemic, before we started working from home, we're spending as many waking hours with our coworkers as we were with our family members. Right. No wonder so many of these issues were going unnoticed if, if the people charged with helping people in that moment uh less than one in four actually felt confident doing so well no wonder there was an issue here right absolutely and if nothing else i think it's it's a call for training and where training is an appropriate uh, understanding and um you know personal growth for each human being simply because they're a global citizen about these struggles. But with that said, I do, I want to, you know, we could go off on tangents for sure about global, <laughs> you know, global awareness and, and what to do, but I would like to, um, I would like to really go back to your specific story, uh, going back to, I guess when you were 23, seems like the right place to go and those struggles sure. and, and, um, you know, how you made it through that very difficult time and to get to where you are now. Well, uh, the, the, the period of, of sort of my lowest lasted about 2008, 2009. Um, and that's when I was fully, you know, medically level addicted, not, not just throwing that word around. Uh, and, and, and that, for those who don't know that, you know, to, to fit the textbook, the DSM-5, you have to have the physical and the mental dependency on on these, these whatever the thing is. And right. uh, obviously, most of the time we hear about this in the context of 
substances, but but it can be a lot of things. You know, I, I love giving the example of uh, I have a good friend whose father hasn't worked in 25 years because he has a working out addiction where he has to work out three times a day and right. it keeps him from holding a job. That's to me just as harmful as as someone struggling with substances, and yet obviously that doesn't have nearly the, the stigma. Uh, but for me personally, because my struggle uh, was seen through the lens of, of, of this diagnosis that at the time, uh, you know, my family still believed, I still believed, it was a lot harder for me to get help because the person who was supposed to be helping me was the one who was making me worse. Right. Um, you know, I, I joke a lot and say that I didn't have to worry about where my next hit was going to come from because uh, Walgreens and CVS were my dealers. Yes. Uh, I, I could drive to them. I didn't have to get out of the car, I went through the drive through so uh, th- it made my 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 struggle different in that respect, but uh, you know this was definitely not unique. I mean, this is happening to tens, hundreds of thousands of people every year. Uh, for me, that looked like living in a in a house at the, at the time um, with I think it's 10, 11 other people who were all. Uh, you know, the only thing we really had in common is most of us were using together. And, right. and I do want to say uh, that a, a distinction needs to be made between uh, regular old use and misuse in uh, addiction, which is where I was. Not all of them were uh, struggling with addiction. They, they just, uh, you know, using drugs was was a big part of our, our shared uh, collective life at the time. So uh, these were people that were friends. They were people that that I I you know trusted and cared for at the, at the time very deeply. Um, but but that was really what held us together. Was was that uh, drug using was was sort of our our collective medicine for what was ailing us in, in our lives at that time. Would you say, Jay, that you know this is back when you were twenty three? So I'm ag- I'm guessing that this was probably around that early time where. Uh, opiates and other, um, you know, painkillers were a big thing back then where they were being prescribed so freely. And I feel like people were so ignorant to the fact that people were then becoming addicted to them. Um, That coupled with other people not realizing that they should lock up what's in their medicine cabinet or, you know, dispose of it properly if they're not going to use it. Um, Was this coinciding with that, I guess, revolution, for lack of a better way to put it? Yes. Oh, I mean, definitely. Uh, and, and, you know, I, a couple of distinction in there is that while I did uh, use uh, painkillers, uh, for me, that was only a small piece of the puzzle. My struggles were benzodiazepines and antipsychotics. Um, I was, uh, there were other people I was living with who were sort of ahead of the game when it came to uh, opiates. Um, the, you know, the, the, the only drug that honestly is the one that I think causes the the, the bigger problem, not because of its itself, but uh, what gets mixed in it, you know, that being heroin right. uh, was not around, um, you know, that, that, that we, at least when I was living there, nobody in, in the house I lived in was using heroin, but, but any other drug could be found there. And again, I think it, it's so very important to, to say that there were people living with me who, who, you know, were using drugs with me and then going to work every day and, and, and living there, living a, a very normal life. Right. Uh, not all of us can do that. And I clearly couldn't. Uh, I, I sank to this this deep depression of uh, depression and also addiction. Um, and, 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 you know, there's a lot of narratives that go around about what that's like. And I can tell you that some of them are very true and some of them are stories we tell ourselves to try to make sense of things that it's hard to make sense of. Right. 
So um, let's move to, you know, we kind of have a picture of what your daily in and out life was like. Let's move to the, I guess, the darkest time where you felt like suicide was the way out. Um, I, I really would like to hear about um, how you made it through that. Um, thank goodness you weren't successful, but just tell us a little bit about that epiphany. Yeah, so I'll, I'll tell you, it, it's not... It's not the, the the story I think that that um, we hear or or I think we're told a lot, which is that I realized my life was ruined and decided like it was nothing like that. It was, you know, because of my misdiagnosis, I had been told that I had a very serious issue of mental health. Bipolar disorder was my misdiagnosis, and uh, because the, the 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 therapy for that these medications were actually making me worse because again I didn't have bipolar disorder mm -hmm. um I trusted this therapist and he said I had it and so after five years of fighting this thing I kind of went all right if he says I have this and I believe that I have it the the thing that's supposed to be making me better is making me worse clearly I am unfixable mm. that's what I sort of settled on um, and, and, and instead of doing, I think what it would be a much more rational thing, uh, you know, if you, I, I like to use this analogy a lot. If, if you're being, get, been given the diagnosis of cancer, um, now most people go get a second, third, fourth opinion, but let's mm -hmm. say for a second, you don't, and they're giving you chemo and you're not getting better. I would hope at some point you would go, you know, I love this doctor. I, I trust him. I'm going to go check with someone else just to see if they have other ideas before oh, I, right, you know, right. uh, I didn't do that. I, I said, okay, he says, I have this, I trust him. Uh, and if, if, if I'm not getting better, it must be me. So, um, I, I was spent about six weeks following a band around the, the Midwest um, living out of my car, going to music festivals. And, and and this is a really important part of the story because at music festivals, I felt seen. I felt, I felt accepted. I felt uh, included because these were other people who had, you know, less than quote unquote normal lives, right? Um, drug taking was a big part of, of these activities. And so I didn't stick out there. I was just another person. And I get back from this long, you know, enjoyable six weeks and kind of, realized, all right, you know, the, the, I'm not getting better. And I don't, I just do not fit in quote unquote normal life. Um, and that's when I decided that I, I was done. I, I had no hope left uh, and uh, attempted suicide twice in two days. Wow. So tell me how you moved past that. Well, I, um, the, the second time um, I, I succeeded in putting, in, in sending myself into overdose. Mm -hmm. and uh was unfortunately uh as as is too often the case here in this country uh was taken out of my house in handcuffs and uh physically assaulted by a police officer uh that's the last thing i remember that night um i woke up the next day or, or i should say i came to because i was conscious this entire time i just mm -hmm. have no memory of it uh in a lockdown unit across town and uh, I had made it through, you know, uh, someone that I, I, I had called somebody to let them know that I had, I had taken this lethal dosage. And so they had called 911. And so I obviously was, I lived, I, I was taken to a hospital where I was handcuffed to a bed and monitored all night. Uh, and, and the next day I woke up in this lockdown unit and spent three weeks there. Uh, and, and again, you know, at this time, the thinking was that I had this, this bipolar disorder. 
So from the lockdown unit, I was sent to this long-term care facility, what we would have called a mental institution 50 years ago, and spent three months there. And it was there that I finally started to question my diagnosis. Uh, and and p- partly it was because I got to know people with both uh, issues of mental health, including bipolar and, and others struggling with, with addiction and kind of went... God, you know, that looks a lot more like what I'm feeling than, mm-hmm. than this other diagnosis. Um, but the other part of that story is that uh, the, the, the long-term care facility was really a pretty awful place. And I, I could not buy in. It was one of those places that really wanted to tear you down to build you back up kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And, and I was not able to buy into that. Uh, and like I said, I was questioning my diagnosis enough by then that I checked myself out and went to go live with my my grandparents in Sedona, Arizona. Uh, my grandmother is still to this day my best friend. I love her very much. I love that. And and she let me go through detox in her spare uh, bedroom. Uh, so so that was a very uh, painful in all senses of the word time. Uh, detox is not fun, uh, and and going through it for almost four months is even less fun. So uh, it, it was more of, at that point, uh, a commitment to proving everybody wrong, you know, mm. of, of saying, I know that that diagnosis does not fit me. And if that diagnosis doesn't fit me, then I have to just trust myself. And, and, and there was no really few other people that were willing to give me the benefit of the doubt. Uh, so, you know, I, w- I would say I, I, w- I would not recommend spite to be a reason to do anything for anyone. But in that moment, spite was kind of my motivator. But you know what? Um, I would say, and I don't, I don't know if I would call it spite per se, you know, but I I think you hear this if anyone, you know, is an athletic person and, and people are telling them they can't achieve a certain level of athletic performance, you know, people use that as fuel. I think you hear plenty of motivational speakers who talk about, their naysayers fueling their drive. I, I don't know that I would call that spite um, or just that overall feeling of like, if someone says you can't, let me prove to you that I can. Oh, I mean, you're not wrong. Michael Jordan, if, if anyone watched the, uh, the last dance documentary, right. I mean, literally every episode was him saying, and I took that personally, you know, it was, that's what motivated Michael Jordan. And, and that's a little unhealthy when you are the best you know athlete in the world right. uh, to, to be driven by someone, uh, the opposing coach who didn't say hello to you at dinner. That's actually a thing from that documentary. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, I mean, you're right in that moment, whatever gets you to, to, to your peak. Yeah. Uh, it is, is fine. I guess for me, it literally kept me alive was, was yeah. saying, I, I can do this. I know I can do this because, uh, you know, they all said I couldn't and they all, you know, were wrong about me. It was kind of all of those feelings. And, um, I I'm mean, I proved myself awesome right. Episode because I have to bring out something that I think we've all felt that I have felt and it's that gut feeling that something in your life is missing, that there's got to be something else out there for you. And guess what? It is so hard to ignore. We tell ourselves, I shouldn't shift. I should be happy with what I have. And generally, there are signs showing us that a major change is needed in our life. But we talk ourselves into ignoring them. Here's the thing. Those feelings are going to keep showing up over and over in different ways until you get the guts to pay attention to them and decide to make a shift. And once you make that decision, people need support to shift. They need confidence. 
They need clarity. I did. And I would love to support you so that you can do the same. Right now, I have two amazing options of Get Your Shift Together to help you get the confidence, the clarity, and the direction that you need to make that shift in your life that your gut is telling you it's time to make. And if you want to know more about them, you have to go to taragreeve.com or message me on the Should Theory with Tara Grieve Facebook page, and we will get you moving to the shift that you know it's time for you to make. I think it's a, I think it's important to to use whatever motivator works for you to improve your quality of life, your position. Um, I don't love the word position, but your outlook on life. Uh, and and your ability to be a happy functioning citizen of the planet, you know, and I think, um, you know, because there are plenty of people out there who get told they can't and then they just go, okay, and they shrink and they stay in that spot that's not good. And imagine if someone told you that you couldn't and they and you, uh, stayed, I definitely you would. probably wouldn't be here talking to me now, you know, so so I'm a firm yeah, I'm a firm believer of whatever it is that works for you that sparks you and gets you going, spite or otherwise, if that's what gets you out of a dangerous, difficult I couldn't have said it better spot, myself. So be it. Yeah. So so Jay, um, let's fast forward a little bit. You you rely <laughs> on the people that give you the benefit of the doubt. Grandma's your best friend and allows you to detox. Um I have a grandma like that to, for me who I adored and was so important in my life. So I totally uh, feel that vibe. Um, I would say for me, my next burning question is you make it through the detox. You make it through the other side. You, you don't listen to the naysayers and you use your belief in yourself to be properly diagnosed or undiagnosed as it were. Tell me what those next steps were towards um, your brighter future towards, um, happiness towards being properly, um, I don't know if I want to say properly diagnosed, but having a better well, understanding I think the, of what the your important point to make to is that, it. uh, you know, we, we have this vision that's been, that's been sold to us mostly through movies and, and, and the like the, the guy walking out of rehab and throwing up the mission accomplished banner and saying, this is the first day of the rest of my life. You know, that's not, that's not reality. Um, you know, I got off right. the medication, uh, in, in the spring of 2010, but I honestly do not looking back, do not feel that I was recovered. If you can even use that word. Um, I, I like to say it as I don't think that I, my body, my brain, my, my maturity really caught up to my age, uh, until 2015. I honestly took, think it took me a whole five years to recover, to, to, to get healthy. Um, and in that time I uh, got my degree in psychology, uh, because I wanted to learn what had gone on, you know, with me, uh, mm -hmm. and, and, um, you know, I had my first sort of adult relationship. I, uh, got my, my first degree that one ended, got my, I'm sorry, but my career that one ended, got my second career. Um, and then even my third, uh, and all the while mm -hmm. was really still healing. And it wasn't until that year of 2015 that I started to feel whole. Uh, and luckily for me, in 2015, a buddy of mine who runs a storytelling event in, in my hometown of Cincinnati, Ohio, 
uh, asked if I wanted to, to, mm-hmm. to tell my story. And I said no multiple times. And finally, with the help of other people pushing me, decided to do it. And uh, in November, election day, actually, of 2015, told my story on stage for the first time. And that really launched me in this direction, um, started doing this work that night. I mean, it never, it hasn't stopped since in six years. So, uh, it's, it, yeah. So tell me about that feeling. (laughs) Like, tell me about that feeling, like getting on the stage and you're like about to really not just tell your story, but bear your soul, put yourself out there for judgment. Um, you know, are people going to look at me and go, (laughs) Oh, you know, just an addict, blah, 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 make their preconceived notions. Oh, I mean, that's what I thought. I, I was not, let me think the back. That's not what I thought. It's what I was sure of. Uh, my, my, uh, the, that's why I said no multiple times. Look, that stigma is right. real. The way we talk about people who struggle with substance misuse, the way we look down on people who use drugs, that stigma is real. Um, and, and so when I finally said yes, I mean, I was still terrified. Yep. I get up on stage, I tell this story and I walk off stage and I, I still remember this clear as day. I, the first thought I, I had was, well, that's it. I'm done. You know, I've ended my career. Um, I, I was at the time I was in nonprofit fundraising <laughs> and politics, two careers that you really it, it's based on your relationships, it's based on your 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 image. Uh, and I was sure I just had ended them. Yeah, I, I was I was done. Right now you're out. Um, of yourself. And I can tell you. Correct. Now, did you go up there with like an out? Oh, go ahead. I was gonna say, did you go up there with like an outline? And oh, ready no, no, to no. I, I very like, much work. I mean, I told the full story. story. You know, this thing. is like a real sort of storytelling event. So he asked me to craft it and all that kind of stuff, which is now I, I do this now where I host two that I help people tell their story. Yeah. Um, so I, I can tell you the power of story firsthand, uh, both from from doing it and from being on the other side. But I get off stage. And I'm thinking all this and I go sure. to uh, sort of the, the back area. Uh, of this uh, air, uh, this uh, performance uh, place. And I was the last person before the break. And so I'm kind of just standing there. And the crush of people who ran over to me to tell me how amazing, I mean, all of this was the literal opposite of what I thought was going to happen. And, and it showed me in real time how stupid these stigmas are. You know, sure, this is the way that we at large talk about uh, people who struggle with substance misuse. This is the way that we st- we talk about people at large who use drugs. And, you know, we all are partly to blame on that, you know, our our, our uh political leaders, the media, I mean, all of this bears some blame. But in the moment, it's really hard to hear someone be vulnerable about what they've been through and find a way to hate that person. You can't hate up close. It's not possible. So it's yeah. So so when I say that that launched me in this new direction, I mean that like, there has never not been an interview request, a speaking engagement, a, a coaching client since. And I'm going on six years of constantly having people reaching out, wanting me to work with them in some way or another, because this stuff is very real. The percent of people who get through it and want to talk about it is minuscule. And so uh, those of us who do, those of us who have that strength, yep. uh, it, we're, we're busy. <laughs> Yeah, I believe it. I believe it. So um, I can only wrap my brain around um, a small portion of what you said about that, that soaring feeling that 
every preconceived notion and everything that you assured yourself was going to happen, the complete polar opposite happened and probably gave you some validation. I would guess that maybe you had never. Actually, I got a better story for you. If you you want this one, Um, uh, the second time I ever spoke. So, so this happens on election day of 2015 and, maybe two days later, it might've even been the next day, uh, somebody from the local TED community reaches out and says they want me to do what's called a TED salon. And now for for those who don't know, uh, TED has three levels. TED is the, the big ones. TEDx, which I actually just did two months ago, yep. is number two. And then TED salon is sort of a, a networking event where the entertainment mm-hmm. is speakers and everybody has three minutes or so. So they invite me to that. And and I I do, you know, this, this right. first one I gave, the story was about 15 minutes long. So I boil this down to a very quick two and a half, three minutes. Uh, and I get off stage at, at this event and I, uh, I'm, I'm walking off stage and a guy beckons me over and he said, Hey, would you mind coming with me? I said, yeah, what's up? And he takes me into the kitchen. He's the, he's the kitchen manager. And it turns out that this, this other space where I just told this, this story has a policy, or at least it did back in 2016, of only hiring people in recovery to work in the kitchen. And they had heard this story. They had the, the audio on. And wow. we sit down and we all end up just swapping stories and talking about our experiences. You know, we're all crying our eyes out. And uh, I, I say this, I'm so sorry for anybody who ordered food in that period because mm-hmm. it did not go out. Uh, but But it was such a beautiful moment. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean yeah, right. Uh but but all these people it, right? who just heard someone stand <laughs> on stage and tell their, you know, version of their story and feel seen and feel validated. Uh that one still here I am, you know, 5 years later, that still is the best experience of doing this. Well, and I think, you know, Jay, your story is amazing. And yet whenever I talk to someone, you know, I have people who I talk to who have, I would say, a variety of experiences, struggles, and yet the common thread is some sort of fear of judgment, disbelief in their own ability, lack of confidence and clarity, uh, or just fear of failure. And I think those themes are are common all the way through. And and when I'm listening to you tell your story and you're saying like, I, I got the nerve to get up there and tell my story and the success and the excitement and the positivity that you got uh, in return, yeah. what validation that is. And I think that's the part that I don't care what your struggle is. That's something that we all can A, connect with. And I think any of us that have this vision of, God, I really want to do this. If only I could, I would. Um, that, that process and that feeling of freedom is something I hear time and time again, that when you just have that courage to put yourself out there, it's amazing what you get back in return. And I think a lot of people don't realize that or trust that that's going to happen, but you're just another example that it does. So tell us, tell (laughs) us. Well, I definitely agree with you. And I think that it does take just doing it to, to get there. Um, you know, I, that's what I do now. I just do it. So, so I, I various ways of, uh, you know, I started this company choose your struggle in 2015 when I still, when I told that story, uh, and officially launched it full time, like I said, in 2019, January of 19, uh, with two stated goals, number one, ending stigma and number two, promoting honest and fact-based education around mental health, substance misuse and recovery and drug use and policy. We unfortunately for far too long have been 
both intentionally and unintentionally misled around these topics. Uh, and, and it's time that we come from a place of fact-based education and not just what, what feels right or our gut. So um, that's what I do now. It comes, it, it comes in many forms. The, the podcast, Choose Your Struggle, uh, find it wherever you get your podcast. Uh, multiple uh, live virtual storytelling events that I, I kept saying, and, and in 2021, we're going to do it in person. And now I'm just back to saying, eh, they're, they're virtual. Hopefully next year we'll, we'll do it in person. Um, and, and I've got a book coming out next year. All sorts of stuff around trying know, to help so end stigma hard. and promote honest and fact-based education. Do you have a title for <laughs> no, your Unfortunately, book yet? we're not there yet. My, I'm working with a writer, and, and uh, we're, we're about three-fourths of the way done. We, we're kicking around a couple of different ideas. But I'll tell you what, you know, if, if once it comes out, I would awesome. love to come back and, and tell you all about it. Absolutely. I was going to say that is a book that I know is going to be on my must read list um, for sure. So um, if people if people love your story, I feel like people are going to reach out to you in one of two ways. Either they or someone they love has similar struggles and they they want to reach out to you for your opinion, for your wisdom, for your assistance um, and or uh, someone is listening who has some sort of an event or place or corporation or situation where your story and your knowledge and your speaking would be so motivating and helpful to whomever they serve. So how can someone find you? Yeah. So um, I appreciate you, that opportunity. I'll, I'll tell you this, those of us who do this work have a saying, and that is we'd rather spend two hours listening to you today than two hours at your funeral tomorrow. I say that whenever I'm interviewed, whenever I speak, and and you're right, people Agreed. take that to heart. Uh, I, I I tell this a lot. I think it's hilarious. Uh, I have had people reach out to me over TikTok and just be like, "Hey, do you have a second? You know, and and, and I don't recommend that. I always forget that I have a TikTok, so so don't do that. But um, if that's how you feel comfortable, you know, just needing <laughs> someone to talk to, I'll I'll do it. That's fine. So uh, you can find me at my website, jshiffman.com, J-A-Y-S-H-I-F-M-A-N.com. Uh, search for me on all social media. I'm either Jay Shiffman or Choose Your Struggle. The podcast is wherever you get your podcasts. And yeah, happy to come speak wherever. Uh, you know, COVID has, has made us all figure out how to do it virtually. So, you know, definitely, definitely able to do that if that's what you're looking for. They sure have. I love that. So Jay, if you're ready, I would love to hit you with my uh, ending Let's, As they say, hit me with your best shot. Spot ones. All right. So given that this is should theory, I really like to um, focus on those shoulds that are in our lives. And, you know, shoulds aren't just negative. I think they can be positive as well. They can motivate us and they can hold us back. So what limiting should uh, would you say even now uh, with all of your success and and process still all right so this one's gonna be and, a super unpopular one but if you should always prioritize making money uh, that one is the one that, that I get the most uh, let me this real quick mm -hmm. so uh, my business is all about like I said those two goals and you'll hear that nowhere in there was you know prioritizing putting most money I can in my pocket. And so I've had even people I love very dearly refer to this as my hobby, right? Even though this is a business, has been a company for, for over half a decade. And right. uh, recently, I, I used this analogy that the, the, the social media platform Nextdoor uh, went public. 
and in their IPO, they stated, we do not know how to make this a, a, a profitable business. And we are currently losing 250 to $300 million a year. Their IPO was valued at $1.2 billion. So if you're telling me that the only way that I can get valued as a company is to yeah. lose more money, fine, I'll go do it. I'd rather focus on helping people's lives. I love that. I love that. And I mean, listen, I think there's something to be said for wanting to put out content that helps people uh, and, and not necessarily at the uh, mutual benefit of yourself. And I'm also a firm believer that if you're doing things for the right reasons, <laughs> I'm with you. I agree. Then how to pay your bills will come, you know? Yeah. So the other part of that, um, the opposite side of that is what positive should, and I guess I'm going to say the one you just said could have a positive spin to it, but what positive should um, motivate yeah, you and I keep would you say going the, the, and get the you The easiest is you should be vulnerable. Uh, I posted on um, all my social media this week, uh, Facebook reminded me that uh, 12 years ago, I posted the status of I'm trying my best. And as you now know, from hearing my story, this was right before I attempted suicide twice and overdose. So uh, I reminded people, look, I, uh, right. this is the most clear right. example you can ever get that we are trying our best. Uh, clearly, I was struggling in this moment. And yet I just wanted everyone to know that I was doing the best I could. So I put that out there. I've had so many people be like, oh my God, this is so moving, all that kind of stuff. But the thing is, is that like until five years ago, I would be terrified to say something like that online. And and again, it's going back to that thought that, well, if you're vulnerable, people, I don't mm -hmm. know, whatever that garbage is. The fact is, it's the opposite. People love it. People eat it up. People respect you. So you should be vulnerable. You know? You should. And I think there's so much salesy, gimmicky, fake bullshit out there that to just be your 100%. true authentic self is really what people are hungry for. Um, all right. So that moves me to my next one, which is what um, would you at this point in your life say to 22, 23 year old? Get Jay, a second opinion. Uh, if you could go back uh, and say something. <laughs> I mean, look, it's it's such an mm -hmm. easy thing to say, but the fact is is that uh, over eighty percent of people who uh, struggle with their mental health do uh, do not get a second opinion on these on these labels, and, and you know that's just there's literally no downside, right? Like I said earlier, with with cancer, it, it, it's expected in that treatment that you're going to go get a second or third opinion. We need to normalize doing that with mental health, but it's so hard to find a therapist. It's so expensive. People just balk at it and say, well, if they say it, it must be true. No, it, this is going to change your entire life. Go get a second opinion. Agreed. All right. Last question that you were not prepared for. Um, what is the best advice you have ever gotten that you still yeah, so uh, return the, the, to? I, I skipped over this part, but you know, like I said, I was very reluctant to, to tell that story back in 2015. And uh, what finally pushed me over the edge was I went home and I was having dinner with my parents and I told my dad about this opportunity. And look, at the time, my dad was not like the kind of guy that he is now, who is the most supportive person, very much, you know, loves what I do, listen to every episode of the podcast. At the time, he was much not just wasn't that. But but I told him about this mm -hmm. opportunity. 
and he I still remember this this scene completely. He lowers the New York Times that he's reading. He looks right at me and he says, fear is never a good reason not to do something. And then he lifts back up the paper as if he didn't just blow my world apart. Mm-hmm. So, yes, fear is never a good reason not to do something. <laughs> uh, in fact, most of the time, it's a good reason to do it. If you're scared, there's a good reason behind it. That is one of the best ones I've heard. Uh, I'll tell him you said so. I've record, recorded so far. I love that. Yeah, please do. So what I like to do, Jay, is go back and um, point out or restate some of the gems that you have said <laughs> while we were talking, and there's quite a few today. Um, so if you bear with me, I'm going to do a little bit of a, a skating tour of, of all of your really salient points. Um, you talked about uh, how, you know, when you were struggling with your addiction, you didn't have to worry about where your next hit was coming from because it was coming from Walgreens or CVS. And that really was because what you were getting was a part of your misdiagnosis. Um, you talked about depression and addiction walking hand in hand. And I say that because I think people don't always realize that those two things do. Um you talked about this really this really hit home with me when you talked about because of your misdiagnosis the meds making you worse and trusting uh the the therapist that you you were working with you had this believing that you, belief that you were unfixable and that in it, in and of itself was why you tried to take your own life not because you were addicted to drugs but because you felt like there was no fixing what I am and who I am and, and what a terrible feeling that must've been. Um, another point that you made, if I'm not getting better, it must be me and how often we put ourselves down instead of questioning our information, our sources, our resources, or like you said, getting that second opinion. Um, you said that what worked for you was a commitment to proving everyone wrong and relying on those who gave you the benefit of the doubt. Shout out to grandma. Um, <laughs> you said uh, giving yourself time to heal was important. And I would say, and I'm paraphrasing, but allowing yourself that time for your recovery to spread out so that you could maturity wise catch up with your chronological self. It wasn't just about detoxing from the drugs, but it was about catching up with all those other things. Um, and as a result, you saw in real time how stupid stigmas are, especially when you did your first speech. Uh, I love this statement. You cannot hate up close. Isn't it easy for people to uh, you know, have their judgments of us until that they are right there in our face, raw, looking at our story? It's very hard for people to do that. Um, so you also said to um, always that your negative should is to always prioritize making money. Uh, your positive should is that you should be vulnerable. Your advice to long ago, Jay, is get a second opinion. And that advice goes to everybody. I don't care what your malady is. Please do that. And finally, and this is a gem, fear is never a good reason to not do something. Right. Amazing, amazing yep. thing. And the bottom Just line is it. this. Get out Nike, there and do Nike the thing. had it right. Just do it. Whatever. <laughs> That's right. Jay, I <laughs> promise you will be back when that book is written because people need to hear 
um, this. People need more ways to to catch you. Is there anywhere uh, this fall that you're going well, to be where uh, people the, want to the see you speak? Speaking that? event that I host, um, one of the two. Uh, our next one is the August 25th. Uh, that'll just be me hosting. I am not. I am not speaking. Uh, uh, there are a couple, unfortunately, everything that I am is it, right now is still a potential. It's not locked in. So I can't, I can't say anything for sure. And, and honestly, that's just because right. of COVID, which is unfortunate. There were so many things that it's happening to, and the speaking sure. industry has and been completely upended. And I feel, I, yeah. I want to say if any other speakers Everybody. hear this, I feel you, I'm with you. It's, it's tough. <laughs> It is. And listen, so I'm just going to drive people again to jshiftman.com because that's where if you want to find out that Jay is speaking somewhere virtually or otherwise, that's going to be the place to catch um, more of who he is and what he does because, man, is it inspiring. Jay, it has been amazing having you with us today. Um, I'll remind our listeners that all of Jay's socials and his website will be um, linked in the show notes so you can easily click there and find him and work with him. You are an inspiration, my Thank friend. Thank you. And it has been amazing. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so glad that you're with me.